0: Uh, well, let me invite you to take out your Bibles and to turn them open to Mark chapter six, as we pick up in our study of this gospel, Mark chapter six. And as you're doing so, uh, uh, I may have shared with you this with you before. But one of the most moving passages in all of English literature is found in Charles Dickens' uh, A Tale of Two Cities. Towards the end of the story, there's a scene depicted that is quite. Uh, moving. Of course, the story takes place during the the French Revolution, and it's dealing with circumstances surrounding all that's happening in England and in Paris and all those things. Well, on the French side of things, each day there was a grim uh, procession that would go throughout the streets of of Paris as prisoners were being led to the guillotine. And on this one occasion, during one of the processions, uh, there was a guy named Sidney Carton. And Sidney uh, was a man who had volunteered, or basically he had... uh, offered himself to die in the place of a friend and so he took his friend's place and he's going to the guillotine and beside him there's a little girl and this little girl was in the prison cell when when Sidney made this known that he was going to be taking his friend's place and this little girl was moved by his sacrifice he was moved by his selflessness and so she uh, was walking with him in this procession and and she looks up at him and she says to him If I may ride with you, will you let me hold your hand? I am not afraid, but I am a little weak, and it will give me more courage. And so hand in hand, they rode together, and when they reached the place of execution, he noticed, uh, Dickens writes, there was no fear in her eyes. As she looked up into the quiet, composed face of her companion, and she says out loud, I think you were sent to me by heaven. It's a powerful scene as you see a little girl inspired by someone else's selflessness. A little girl taking courage in her companionship with the one that she took that road with. All of which happening in the midst of this revolution. And, and I say that because we're stepping into a passage that at first glance may seem, it may seem strange for us to talk about uh, the theme of revolution when you look at the passage we're looking at this evening. But I think it's entirely appropriate if you and I consider what's taking place when Jesus performs undoubtedly his most, one of his most famous miracles, the feeding of the 5,000. This is the one miracle apart from the resurrection of Jesus that appears in all four Gospels. But what we're seeing in this moment is that this one who's been sent from heaven to ignite what might be described as a gospel revolution and to Empower our participation in the things that He's doing, regardless of what sacrifices and what selfless uh, acts what selfless acts are going to be required of us along the way. Now, again, this is one of those stories that is quite common. It's quite familiar. You don't have to be uh, necessarily a person who's grown up in church or around Christianity to have perhaps heard of this story. This moment, Jesus feeds the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. He performs this uh, incredible miracle. It's a popular story that has kind of made its way into the fabric of our context and our culture and our society in a variety of ways, and it inspires generosity and inspires sharing. It it inspires all types of things. It's one of those stories that makes it into every selective children's Bible that you'll read. Of course, you can't find a children's Bible that accounts for everything in the scriptures, but it's somewhat selective and for for, uh, reasons that are understandable, but this is one of the stories that's consistent in them all. Because it's often displayed as a happy story of families sitting around and eating together. But what I want us to do tonight is I want us to kind of look at this passage from a different angle. I want us to look at this passage from an angle that is oftentimes overlooked and one that is not always talked about. And that is, this is a story about a revolution. It's a story about what might be described as a gospel revolution. And I'll show this to you in a variety of ways. I, I think scholars are. Queuing in on this as the more they've been studying the gospel of Mark and the more they've been looking at the details of this story. And I'll just point out four uh, signals that kind of cue us into its revolutionary nature and its revolutionary intent. You, you understand that this passage takes place in rural Galilee. At the time in the first century, rural Galilee was a stronghold for what was known as the Zealot Movement. The zealot movement was a militant group of Jewish nationalists who wanted to conspire the overthrow of the Roman Empire, or the Roman oppression in Israel. And so they were constantly moving in clandestine ways to to bring that about. And so the setting of this story is in the backyard of this, this zealot stronghold. And then you have this reference there in verse 34 to sheep without a shepherd. Now, at first glance, that may seem like an innocuous phrase, a cute phrase, a a uh, compassion-generating phrase, sheep without a shepherd. But that is a phrase that speaks to uh, a military dynamic. You'll see it littered all throughout the Old Testament, usually in reference to when Israel was found with leaders incapable of leading them uh, into a, a victorious situation you got leaders like Joshua who'd be needed to come and be a military leader for the people of Israel in that moment before Joshua was recognized and affirmed as that leader Israel's described as a sheep without a shepherd a leaderless people who cannot handle the pressures that are being applied to them from the surrounding nations and so you do have a a military dynamic behind that phrase And then there's also a clandestine element when you look at verses 31 through 33 where you have this many who are described as coming and going. You get this impression that that some are coming towards Jesus, listening to what he's saying and then they're going and telling others and they're coming in and it's kind of this covert clandestine movement. It's suggesting that that people are getting ready for something, some type of revolution. Perhaps they're, they're envisioning this Jesus as being this militant Messiah who's come to liberate the Jews From Roman oppression. But then later in verse 44, there's an interesting dynamic where we're told that 5,000 men, and that is a gender-exclusive word, men ate of the loaves. And that that description excludes the women and the children, not because it's biased against women and children. That phrase, I believe, excludes women and children, and the hard masculine is used there because it's this depiction of what might be uh, viewed as a type of army. A military force, five thousand soldiers, so to speak, are getting ready to follow the Messiah into to liberate uh, or to kick out the Romans from their land. And now, if you really want kind of proof of this, in John's account, in John chapter six, verses fourteen and fifteen, after Jesus feeds the five thousand, and after this miracle happens, check out what is said in verse fourteen of John chapter six. It says, "When the people saw the sign they had done, referring to Jesus and his disciples." They said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. This is the Messiah, the anticipated one. Perceiving then, Jesus, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew himself, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And so this crowd in this moment, there's an there's a instance towards the end where this crowd wanted to come and take Jesus and force him into kingship, take him by force and make him their king to make him their leader. They were clamoring for a revolution, and indeed, Jesus has come to bring a revolution, but the type of revolution Jesus would bring into the world contrasted starkly from the revolution that was was championed by the zealot movement and by many people who wanted a violent revolution, a revolution that would say, well, power must be taken, but then Jesus steps in, and he launches what might be described as a gospel revolution that isn't bent on taking power, but it's actually bent on surrendering power. It's bent on giving power. A revolution that doesn't come about by, by exercising violent acts, but a revolution that is, that is ignited by one violent act that wasn't done by Jesus, but one that was done to Jesus when he dies on the cross. So I think this story is a story about a gospel revolution, and it is a revolution that is quite different from any revolution you may read about throughout the canon of human history. And and so I want us to consider, look at verse 30. We'll just kind of hold that in your mind as we walk through the passage. It says... the apostles, referring to uh, Jesus' 12 disciples, the ones who earlier in verses 7 through 13 had been sent out to engage in the ministry of Jesus. They went out and did the very same things Jesus had been doing all along, uh, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and performing miracles and and, 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 uh, exiling demons and doing those types of things. And then here in verse 30, they've come back to Jesus and they're reporting to him. It says that they told Jesus all that they had done and taught and so Jesus said to them, "Okay, well let's take a break, let's retreat, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while." For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. So many were, were pressing in on Jesus and His disciples trying to figure out what they were about. Jesus says, "Let's get away let's rest." And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Not many saw them going, and now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had, get this, compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Again, this kind of speaks to this. Jesus was always, he had a tendency when he looked out upon the crowds that would gather around him, there was a tendency for the cord of compassion to be struck within him. A very similar thing it goes down in Matthew chapter 9 when he looks out and sees the crowd and he sees they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, a leaderless people, a people whose earthly leaders were inadequate to bring about the kingdom of God, earthly leaders who could not accomplish God's purposes for the world, a people who desperately needed a more qualified leader, a better leader, a people who needed the ultimate shepherd whose name is Jesus who's come to bring in this ultimate revolution. As I was studying and reflecting upon this moment, I was reminded of what the scene would be like if I ever walked into my daughter Delaney's preschool co-op and the te- say there was no teachers, there was no leaders. It would just be mad chaos. I mean, there'd be a revolt there. I mean, everything would be in disorder. Toys would be all over the ground. Crayons would be stuck up noses and in ears, and all kinds of crazy things would be happening because these kids aren't, aren't capable of leading themselves in the direction in which they need to be led, and there's a sense in which... When Jesus sees this crowd coming to him, he's stirred with compassion because he recognizes their need for a more qualified leader than the ones they were accustomed to. You see, all throughout the history of Israel, Israel had seen good leaders, decent leaders come and decent leaders go. They've seen a lot of bad leaders come and a lot of bad leaders go. In fact, in the passage we saw last week, when we looked at King Herod who was the ruler of this, the Roman representative of this region who was overseeing what was happening in this area, uh, he was a bad leader. He was a ruthless leader. He was a leader without any conviction or any integrity. And so Jesus sees this, he knows this, and he's stirred with compassion about it. Because ultimately the revolution that Jesus has come to bring into the world is a revolution of, is a compassionate revolution marked by word and wonder. A lot of the reason why this chaos was happening and people were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd is because there weren't people communicating to them the reality of who God is and what God intended for them. This is why when it says Jesus was moved to compassion, the very next thing he does might catch us all off guard. After he's stirred with compassion, what does he do? He begins to teach them many things. Now, we do not often equate compassion with instruction. We usually view compassion as some type of physical deed, something we do to help somebody's physical needs. But here, Jesus' compassion led him to instruct the people. It led him to communicate the reality of the kingdom of God. And so when it comes to our compassion, as we participate in the things that Jesus is doing here in the city of Seattle, as we want to be a compassionate people, we don't want to be the types of people who put a wedge between word and wonder, a wedge between works and and teaching or instruction. Jesus' compassion is stirred, and the first thing he does is he teaches them, he instructs them, because ultimately Jesus' word nurtures our souls. See, Jesus knows this from his own experience. Earlier in Mark chapter 1, when he retreated into a desolate place, when he went into the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy and to commune with his father, it says he fasted for 40 days. And in the midst of this fast, at one point, the enemy came up and tried to tempt him away from obeying his father, tempt him away from trusting God's intentions and purposes for his life. And there was a moment where the enemy steps up and says, Hey, here's some stones. Why don't you turn these stones to bread? I know you're hungry. Why don't you make provision for your physical need? Turn these stones into bread and Jesus looks at him and he says, you know, man shall not live by bread alone. Man shall live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, it is the word that nourishes our souls, it is the word that Holds us together. It is the word that allows our souls to grow. And when it comes to the compassion of Jesus, his compassion is a comprehensive compassion. Yes, he's concerned about physical needs, but yes, he's concerned about our spiritual needs as well. This is why, if we're going to be a compassionate people, we must feast on the word, we must give ourselves to the teaching and the preaching of the scriptures. Now, as you know, in living in a health-conscious society as we do, that there is a reality that that we're all aware that we become what we eat, right? Which is why we want to eat healthy, so that we become healthy. We don't want to eat poorly because we know that can have a poor effect on our physical health. Well, the same goes for our spiritual, well, our spiritual health as well. You become what you eat. And so it's important that if we're going to feast upon the Word, that we feast on the whole Word and not just selected bits and pieces of the Word that, that are easier to swallow, When it comes to feasting on the word, we need both fruits and vegetables. We need things that that are pleasant and enjoyable and we also need things that at first glance might taste a little bitter, might taste a little sour, might be hard to choke down, but we need it all because the word nurtures our souls. This is why as a church, when when somebody asks, are you a compassionate church? We say yes and they say, what form does your compassion take? Well, first it starts with the teaching of the scriptures because we understand that the ministry of the word is the one thing our church cannot do without. But we also recognize that if we have the ministry of the word, the ministry of the word will not let our church do without anything else. It is the ministry of the word that will, give, that will bear the fruit of compassionate ministry towards people's physical needs. So when Jesus is stirred with compassion, the first thing he does, he begins to teach the people, he begins to nurture their souls, he begins to provide instructions, and he does so for a while because eventually the sun went down. And when the sun went down and the sun started to go down, uh, the disciples recognized that people needed more than just the instruction, that they actually needed food. And so you pick up reading in verse 35, it says, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread? That's about six to eight months worth of uh, salary worth for food and and give it to the crowd for them to eat. And he he said, well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. And this sets the stage for the miracle that Jesus performs in this moment. Because not only does Jesus' compassion take the form of word and instruction, Jesus' compassion takes the form of wonder as he performs a miracle in this moment designed, yes, to meet the physical need of the crowd, but it was also a wonder designed to call their attention to something far more glorious than the simple provision of food, of fish and bread. You see, when it comes to Jesus' wonders, when he performs miracles like this, whether it's in this moment Or in the other parts of the gospel, anytime you see Jesus performing a miracle, we have a tendency to define miracle as that moment when God might suspend the natural order. We say, well, if God performs a miracle, he suspends the natural order and he does things that's supernatural or or unnatural. But when Jesus performs a miracle, you and I need to think more deeply about what a miracle is. See, Jesus does not simply suspend the natural order of things when he does this, when he performs this unexplainable uh, miracle of feeding a multitude of people with five loaves and two fish. Now, Jesus isn't suspending the natural order in this moment. Jesus is actually restoring the natural order of things. It is these types of miracles that remind us of what God intended for us when he created us originally. In the Garden of Eden, when the people had all of their needs met, they were not lacking anything. They enjoyed the presence of God, they enjoyed all the surplus of God's creation, eating it without not being enslaved to it. They were benefited and enjoyed all that God had provided for them in Eden, but then the fall broke the world. And now we live in a world where there is need. Now we live in a world where there is hunger. We live in a world where there is sickness. We live in a world where there is death. We look in a world where there is sin, where there is injustice, where there are oppressive rulers like Herod and others. We live in a broken world. And so when Jesus performs these miracles, he's not suspending the natural order. He's restoring it to what God originally intended. But not only is he restoring it to what God originally intended, he's assuring us that his one, these wonders actually reveal our future. He's giving us a glimpse into where history is headed He's showing us a picture of how there's coming a day when, when, the gospels, when the revolution of the gospel wins out and it encompasses all of the created order. There's coming a day when there will be no hunger, there will be no sickness, there will be no death, there will be no demonic oppression, there will be no ruthless leaders, there will be nothing but full, satisfied lives. He's revealing our future through this wonder. And when you take the word of Jesus that he's instructing them on and you take the wonder of Jesus that he's performing this, when you have word and wonder coming together, you find yourselves participating in a compassionate revolution where we are giving people hope through the message we communicate and then we are displaying the wonder of God by showing such incredible compassion and service to those in need. Now, of course, Jesus, there's more to it in this moment. You you have this... You have word, you have wonder in here, but it's also what you find is this is a powerful revolution, that it's a compassionate revolution of word and wonder, and it is a powerful revolution of participation and provision. This is what we're getting after in verses 35 through 38. Notice the disciples' response in that moment when things uh, when it gets late and he, they want to send the crowd away to fend for themselves, but Jesus says, no, you are going to give them something to eat. I'm actually gonna use you to perform this wonder. I'm gonna perform this miracle and you're gonna participate in what I'm doing because my revolution is a powerful revolution of participation and provision. And when you look at verse 37, although the disciples wanted to send the crowd away to fend for themselves, Jesus emphatically says, you give them something to eat. Now, if you're familiar with the storyline of the Bible, you know that Jesus could have fed the crowd without the disciples' help. He did not need their participation in this moment. In fact, when you look at the story of Exodus, which provides a strong background for how we understand this story as well, as Moses is leading the people of Israel through the desolate place, through the wilderness, you know that God provided manna from heaven. He dropped it uh, like cloudy with a chance of meatball style, like food coming from heaven on a daily basis, enough for giving them all that they needed every single day, feeding the people with manna from heaven. Jesus could have done that in this moment. He could have created enough food ex nilo. He could have just spoken it into existence the way he did the universe. But Jesus doesn't do this. Instead, he turns his attention to the disciples. And for some unknown reason, he says, you give him something to eat. You're going to be a part of this revolution. You are going to be a part of my kingdom. You are going to be a part of bringing compassion of word and wonder into the world. And so you have this expectation. Jesus expects our participation in the things that he's doing in the world. You see, as you and I begin to follow Jesus and we find ourselves his disciples trusting him, following him, loving him, you understand that we do not do so as sideline observers. We do not sit back and observe all the things that Jesus is doing in the world. No, we step in and we participate in what Jesus is doing in the world. And when it comes to being a part of his gospel revolution, we understand that it's not just about doing things for Jesus, it's about doing things with Jesus, which is what the disciples are experiencing now. They've been ministering earlier, verses 7 through 13, doing the very similar things that Jesus had called them to do and equipped them to do. And then verse 30, they come back and they're explaining all of this. And Jesus says, I've got more to show you. There's more to this. And so he sets up this occasion where the disciples will see Jesus do exceedingly and abundantly more than they could ever ask or imagine. He was going to give them the blessing of participating in the wonder, being a part of the miracle. And so they're looking around, and he says, you're going to give them something to eat. And the disciples start thinking about uh, why it can't be done. They don't have enough money. How absurd it is that Jesus would even ask them to feed the crowd. I mean, they're supposed to give all their money to make this happen. But then Jesus says, well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And then at that moment, in John chapter 6, we're told that the disciples went to see what type of food was available and who was willing to give it to Jesus. And there was one little boy who gave his five loaves and two fish. Now, when you think lo- loaves, don't think Dave's Wonder Bread. Don't think a full loaf that could feed many people. These, that, the word there conveys more like a barley loaf. It's more like a biscuit. It was a food that was very common amongst poor people in the first century. And so this boy has five of these little biscuits and two fish. And this boy actually hands this these resources over to Jesus. He gives Jesus what he had. And then Jesus takes and he empowers the contribution, doesn't he? He takes these five loaves and these two fish and he, bre- he blesses them. He breaks them and he distributes them out, feeding everyone there and then some. So, that when you come to the end of the store, you still have 12 baskets full of food that others can take. It's just, it's an abundant miracle in this moment as Jesus not only expects our participation, he empowers our contributions as we do so. See, one of the reasons perhaps some of you have not gotten involved in what Jesus is doing in the city of Seattle is because you feel like you're too inadequate. You do not believe you have much to offer. You're under this illusion of the American dream that suggests, that, or kind of seeps into our Christianity and says, well, God only cares about your strengths and your power. He's only concerned about what you can do. And so we think, well, God, I'll give you my strengths. And so whatever those are, I'll give to God. But my weaknesses, my inadequacies, my brokenness, I'm going to hold those back from God. The thing, the barley loaves in my life, I'm not going to give to God because he can't really do much with those types of things. But here, I think we're being challenged in this story to not only give God where we believe we're adequate, but to give God where we know we are inadequate. For Jesus empowers our contributions. Whatever we give him, he will take, he will bless, he will break, and he will distribute towards other people's benefit. And so don't sell Jesus short in what he is willing and wanting to do in your life. Don't just say, well, I'm strong in this area, so that's how I serve. If Jesus is encouraging you to step out on faith and to see him perfect his power in your weakness, give him your weaknesses. Give him your inadequacies. Inadequacies. Give him your barley loaves. Because this gospel revolution is a revolution of power. It's a powerful revolution of participation and provision. Participation and provision. So when we participate in what Jesus is doing, we give everything to him and we trust him to do what only he can do. So don't sell yourself short. There's, there's a woman by the name of Elizabeth Elliot. She was married to a missionary, to a, to a guy named Jim Elliot back in the 50s who was uh, martyred. He was speared by uh, a tribe of people who did not believe the gospel and had not yet heard the gospel, and he was killed in the process of trying to bring the gospel to them. And since then, she's lived a long life of just writing and thinking and encouraging dis- disciples in many ways. And, and as I was studying this passage and I was thinking about how Jesus empowers our contributions, her, her words came to my mind, and this is what she said Elizabeth Elliott writes If the only thing you have to offer is a broken heart, You offer a broken heart. So in a time of grief, the recognition that this is material for sacrifice has been a very great strength for me. Realizing that nothing I have, nothing I am, will be refused on the part of Christ, I simply give it to him as the little boy gave Jesus his five loaves and two fishes. With the same feeling of the disciples when they said, what is the good of that for such a crowd? Naturally, in almost anything I offer to Christ, my reaction would be, What is the good of that? But the point is, the use he makes of it is his blessing. The use Jesus makes of our contributions is the blessing. So we give everything to Jesus, recognizing that the work he's doing in the world, this gospel revolution, is a powerful revolution of participation and provision. And one of the reasons some of us are not yet seeing Jesus do the wonderful things in and through our lives is because we're too busy sitting back on the sidelines making excuses of what can't be done. Like the disciples, we're emphasizing the impossible, whereas Jesus always emphasizes the possible. So let me ask you, what what areas of your life seem impossible right now? What seems insurmountable to you in your life right now as it relates to the life you're leading or the life you're living as a follower of Jesus? Maybe it's your parenting. Maybe you're so uh, stretched and stressed by the demands of the little ones in the home that you don't know if you have the capacity to love anyone outside of the parameters of your family. Maybe you're, you're so stressed and stretched that you're having a hard time showing patience towards the little ones who are having a hard time learning how to navigate this world and all the changes that are taking in their bodies. Maybe it's a marriage that's hit a hard spot and you're, there's a lot of friction there and you're having a hard time getting along with your spouse and you're wondering, well, can Jesus do wonderful things in my marriage? It seems like uh, we're, we're drifting apart. It seems like we're, our hearts are, being, are hardening towards one another. Is it possible for us to give Jesus even our, our, our tough situation and the difficulties of our marriage? Can Jesus do a wonderful thing even in and through that? maybe it's your singleness maybe you've become frustrated of living a life as a single person and you want so you want someone to share life with and you've and you're maxing out your patience in the process and you're tempted to compromise Perhaps you're tempted to compromise your convictions by settling for someone who doesn't share your love for Jesus, settling for someone who doesn't share your trust in Jesus, and you're tempted to give up in this moment, wondering, can Jesus do anything wonderful? Can he be as wonderful as the provider for my life, a spouse? I don't know what might seem impossible to you. Maybe it's something that Jesus is stirring within you. Maybe it's a need that Jesus has tuned you into in our city. Maybe it's a heightened awareness of how People are living lives like sheep without a shepherd, leaderless lives who aren't leading them into the kingdom of God. And your awareness of those needs is increasing. And, and you're tempted to be overwhelmed by the mass needs in the city. And you're wondering can Jesus do something here? Can he change these situations? Can he use our church, as small as it is, to make an impact for the gospel in this city? Maybe Jesus is stirring a desire in you to start a missional community, and you're thinking, well, I've never really had that type of leadership uh, evident in my life. I've never been able to give myself in that type of influential way, and, and so I don't know if I can, I know there's need for missional community. I know there's need for us to make disciples in our neighborhoods and in these smaller clusters and these smaller avenues, and but you're wondering if Jesus can take what you have to offer and Bless it, break it, and distribute it far and wide and do exceedingly and abundantly more than you could ever ask or imagine on that front. And it is where this story we want to contemplate, we want to consider if Jesus expects our participation and if Jesus empowers our contributions. It's where we take all these needs that we have in us and around us, and we say, okay, here's all of our needs. Here, here's my life. Here's my gifts. Here's my, what I think are strengths. Here's what I think are weaknesses. Just, just here's me, God. Take it, break it, bless it, and do something with it. That's what we do on our end. This is what the disciples are learning in this moment as Jesus who could have clearly met the needs of the crowd without their participation, but he chose to bring them in on it, and he's choosing to bring you in on his work as well. Jesus wants to, wants you to be a part of his gospel revolution. And so what's interesting, in verse 39, it says... After they brought these five and two fish, it says, then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Now, this is an interesting command. He tells everyone to sit down in groups before the miracle happens, before the wonder happens. And so they sit down in groups and there's a moment of waiting for Jesus to come through before he begins to feed them, before he blesses and breaks and distributes the food in this miraculous way. And I think there's a word there for us as we consider How when we're following Jesus and we want to participate in what he's doing, sometimes we want Jesus to give us the whole picture of how a certain situation is going to play itself out. We want to know when our marriage is going to be made whole again. We want to know when our parenting will be able to come up for air. We want to know when life will ease up a bit. We want to know when our missional community will start firing and thriving in fellowship and service and in study and do all the things that they're designed to do. We we want the whole picture, but oftentimes Jesus tells us to, to take the next step before he gives us the whole step, before he gives us the whole picture And so it's very important that as you're following Jesus in the world and as you begin to act on the things that he's calling you to do, you do not wait for Jesus to fill in all the gaps before you move. You see, when Jesus provides, when he empowers our contributions and he provides for our lives, he does so in stride. He provides in stride. It is as we walk in faith where we see his wonders coming to be. So don't wait to take a step when you begin to see everything making sense and you begin to see everything uh, working out well. No, you just do. Take the next step. You do what you know you can do in the time that you can do it. This is the, uh, a pattern here that we're discerning. And so verse 40, they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And I love verse 41. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all and they all ate and were satisfied. You see, when it comes to this revolution that Jesus is bringing into the, this world, World. It is a compassionate revolution of one at word and wonder. It's a powerful revolution of participation and provision, but it's also a subversive revolution of sacrifice and service. Here's what I mean by that almost every revolution that happens in the world is ignited by some act of violence that's designed to take power. But Jesus' gospel revolution is a subversive revolution built on sacrifice and service. And this is signaled here in verse 41. Because Jesus' gospel revolution isn't designed to take power necessarily. It's designed to give power. That this is how Jesus will ignite a gospel revolution that will transform our lives and the world we live in. And it comes through sacrifice and service starting with his own. When you look at verse 41, there's a broad hint in the language here. It says that he blessed the food, he broke the loaves, and then he distributed to the disciples to set out. Now, you hold those verbs, blessing, breaking, and giving. Hold those verbs because the same verbs show up again in Mark chapter 14. Turn over into Mark chapter 14, verse 22. This is the moment where Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. And before he does, he institutes the Lord's Supper, talking about what his death on the cross represents for the world. And listen to what goes down in the Last Supper. It says in verse 22 of Mark chapter 14, And as they were eating, he took bread... And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them. And of course, when he does that, and he goes on to say in Mark chapter 14, verse 22, he goes on to say, this is my body. So the bread in that moment that he blessed and that he broke, it was a signal, it was a clue, it was an indicator of his body that would ultimately broken on the cross and so you think about this subversive revolution through sacrifice and service. You understand that when Jesus went to the cross, that same pattern unfolds. Jesus blesses before he is broken. Jesus blesses when he's hanging on the cross and he looks at those who have crucified him and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's blessing, that's compassion, that's forgiveness. And after he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, he's broken. And the bread of life is broken apart so that their forgiveness could be assured. Check that. So our forgiveness could be assured. Jesus blesses us by being broken for us. This is how we ultimately are brought into his gospel revolution. This is how we begin to experience the compassion of God in a life-changing way. This is how we begin to be motivated and empowered to engage a powerful revolution of participation and provision, a subversive revolution of sacrifice and service. It comes when we take the bread of life that had been broken for us into us recognizing Jesus blesses us by being broken for us. He died for us. And as you and I begin to see how that is the ignition switch for his gospel revolution in the world, we begin to take that in in faith. What that will do for you is it will turn you into a revolutionary. When you take that in, you will become a participant in, the, in this gospel revolution. This subversive revolution of sacrifice and service. And here's what it'll look like. When you begin to see how Jesus blesses you by being broken for you, and you see his salvation through his death, you begin to feast on that, all of a sudden you will start living a life that blesses others by, in a sense, breaking for others you will start blessing others by breaking for them. And here's what I mean by that. You think about this, the nature of this gospel revolution, and there are three rhythms of this gospel revolution that, that are kind of takeaways, practical application that we can be compelled out of this room with all strong implications from the feeding of the 5,000, the first of which is in our giving. Just think about it. Your giving is a way in which you can bless others by being broken for others. Anytime you give of your money to help people in need, you are taking a hit in this world. In order to bless others through giving to people in need, you must break for them you open up your wallet and you give money to them. And you know as well as I do, in a capitalistic society, when you give money away, you lose power. In capitalism, power is equated with money. That's the culture we live in. But if we're going to be a part of a subversive revolution, if we're going to, a subversive revolution of sacrifice and service, we do not hold on to power. We do not try to accumulate power by acquiring wealth simply for us. We are part of a gospel revolution of sacrifice and service where we're looking to bless others by breaking for them. So we open up our wallets and we give our money towards that which advances and accentuates the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. We give sacrificially and generously towards meeting the needs of our neighbors spiritually and physically. We want to champion the proclamation of the gospel. We want to champion the provision of physical needs in the world that we live in. We want to give our money to the things that would bless others, but to do that, it requires you and I breaking for others. And if if we refuse to become vulnerable in that sense, if we refuse to breaking when it comes to our finances... We will fail to subvert the culture that we're trying to subvert. We will become a part of a greedy, capitalistic society. And we will not embody a generous culture that is inherent in the kingdom of God. So if we're going to bless this city, we've got a break for this city. And one of the most practical ways in which this happens for us is through our giving. So let me challenge you. You might think, well, I don't have a lot. I just graduated and I can't find a job. Take your five loaves and your two fish. Even then, give to Jesus. Let him take what you have. Let him bless it, break it, and distribute it far and wide. Let him do exceedingly and abundantly more than you could ever ask or imagine with what you consider to be meager contributions, what you consider to be minimalistic contributions. Let Jesus take it and use it and do things that will blow your mind, And bless many people. But not only do you see it in giving, you see it in the way in which we become a forgiving people. Again, this is the subversive revolution of sacrifice and service where we break in order to bless or we bless by being broken for others. You see this when we forgive people. If you are harboring bitterness against someone who's offended you, you are not subverting the culture that you're a part of if you are insisting upon justice against those who have wronged you, especially in the church, you are not subverting the culture you were called to subvert. You are not participating in the gospel revolution. In order to forgive another person as Jesus forgave people from the cross, you must break your pride must break. Your bitterness must, must break. The grudges that you're finding some twisted sense of satisfaction by holding must break. And I know it's hard. I know it doesn't happen easily and naturally, which is why we need to remember that Jesus not only calls us to participate in this revolution, but he empowers our contributions. So we take our, our bitterness and we take our grudges and we offer everything up to jesus and we say jesus take this bless it break it so that forgiveness may flow from me and when you and i become a forgiving people we subvert the culture that we live in because we do not live in a culture that forgives people easily i mean you just you you say one wrong thing on facebook or twitter you make one stupid post online you're done in this society your, 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 your reputation is solid. We, we do not live in a forgiving culture, but in the kingdom of God, we are forgiving people. This is what makes us a, part of a subversive revolution of sacrifice and service. So we do this in our giving, and we do it in our forgiving. We bless others by breaking for them. But then lastly, we do it in our feasting. We do it in our feasting. As we've talked about before, as a, as a people who represent Jesus in the city of Seattle, we want to be a people who feasts with others. We want to turn our tables into places of grace and community and mission. But to do that means we must break a little bit. We must break by buying more food that we might need. We break by opening up our table and inviting people in and sharing our tables with us. We break by not eating all of our meals while watching Netflix. We break by sharing meals with other people, looking other people in the eye, conversing with them, talking with them, exploring the gospel with them. Feasting together is a way in which we subvert the culture we live in. We engage in sacrifice and service. We bless others by breaking for them, and we do it in our feasting. So let me encourage you this week, Open up your life this week. Open up your table this week. Bring people in. Feast with people. Feast with them. And one of the ways in which you and I remember every week of how we are part of this gospel revolution, this compassionate revolution of word and wonder, this powerful revolution of participation and provision This subversive revolution of sacrifice and service is by participating in this mini feast every single week. We come to the table on a weekly basis and we are reminded of the words of Jesus. We take the bread and we are told uh, the body of Christ given for you. And you dip that bread in the cup and you are told uh, this cup. The blood of Christ, which is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And you partake in this feast every week. And as you do, understand that you are recommitting your life to this revolution. You are anteing up your role in what God is doing in the city of Seattle. You're remembering what Jesus has done for you. how How he blessed you by being broken for you. And as you take this in, you turn it out when you leave. Remembering that in order to bless others, you must, in a sense, break for them too. So I'm going to pray for us. We're going to open up the table. I'm going to invite you all to come at your own pace. If you are trusting in the gospel, if you have taken in Jesus by faith, you are welcome to come and partake of this meal. If you've yet to take Jesus in by faith to feast on the bread of life that is Jesus and his life and his death and resurrection, let me encourage you to refrain from coming to the table and reflect upon why that is. On the back of your worship guide or the teaching outline, you'll see a couple of prayers provided to help give you some language about some things you might be processing or thinking or sensing during this time. And so as others are coming to the table, let me encourage you to prayerfully consider those words and to discern what Jesus might be doing in you. And if you find yourself saying, I I want to be a part of this thing. I want to know this leader named Jesus. I want to be part of his gospel revolution. Then come to the table, partake in this meal for the first time as a worshiper and a follower of Jesus Christ. But if you do, let me encourage you to connect with me or one of our other pastors or leaders to to talk with about that. We'd love to shepherd you along the way so that you can learn what it means to follow Jesus in this way. Let me pray for us. We'll open the table and proceed. Heavenly Father, we come before you right now and we thank you for the sending of your son Jesus to live and to die and to rise again. We thank you for what his gospel does for us and what his gospel is doing through us. And I pray as we approach your table now that, you would, that your Holy Spirit would administer his reality to us once again. I pray that we would celebrate the fact that he blesses us by being broken for us. And I pray that as we go from this space tonight, we would seek to bless others by breaking for them too. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.